Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and this is the weekly sermon from Gateway Community Church. We're excited to be able to share inspiring and meaningful messages to help you grow in Christ. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. Now let's dive into God's Word together with this week's message. So I'm curious, have you ever found yourself wondering, even aloud to yourself, aloud to a friend, even in your mind, maybe in your journal, asking the question, God, what are you up to? God, what are you up to? What is going on in my life and why is all of this happening? You're going through the motions of life, perhaps, and, and something happens. It, it could be big or small. It could be anything. Uh, you're, you're constantly struggling in school. You're uh, constantly being challenged in your place of work. You're, you're working through health conditions. Uh, you're, you're, you're getting unexpected expenses. You have a vehicle breakdown. You have a new diagnosis. It could be anything, and you pause to wonder, God, what are you up to? It's so easy in our mind to get, our, get, to get lost in that question, to, to continually wrap yourself around this, this wonderment of, God, can you please just tell me what is going on? You end up doubting God because he doesn't always just immediately give you the answers to the questions you're asking. Sometimes those things take time. Sometimes we never even know why particularly things happen. And so you get all wrapped up, and you get all distracted, and you get all concerned, and you, you, you end up in this mode of doubt. You end up in this mode of restlessness as you are trying to explore just what God is up to. And I think Moses, as we've been, we've been tracking with him, Moses is in a very similar space. He's, he's uncertain. He's restless. He's, he's still doubting. I think Moses lived in this particular space. It's what we looked at a couple weeks ago as we talked about how he was just so un- uncertain and unconfident in himself. I think he lived there, and I think like many of us, we live in that same space, in this uh, lack of confidence, perhaps some doubt, and even who God is and what God is capable of in our lives. And so we've looked closely at these first six chapters of, of the book of Exodus, and we've heard Moses say over and over and over again, God, you've got the wrong guy. He said it many times. As God calls him to do things, he's like, no, can you call him? Can you call her? I don't want to do it. Can you go send someone else? So we've looked also a lot at God's response to Moses. As God has always told him, and every time he says, I've got this. I am in control. You don't need to worry. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, I will send you to Pharaoh, God says. 3, verse 12, God says, I will be with you. 3, verse 17 says, I I will bring you up out of the affliction. 3, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. 4, 12 says, I will be your mouth. 6, verse 6, I will bring you. Six for six again, I will deliver. Six for six again, I will redeem you. Six for seven, I will be your God. Six verse eight, once more, I will bring you into the land. And still Moses says, you've got the wrong guy, God. Why didn't you call them? Why didn't you call her? Why didn't you call anyone else but me? And God says, it doesn't matter about you. I've got this, God says. So then even still, at 6 verse 6, something that I believe we looked at last week, 
Moses says as he's conversing still again with God, at 6 verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people have not listened to me. You've got the wrong guy, God. Call someone else, please. Then he even says, how shall Pharaoh even listen to me? I'm unskilled, I can't do this. Moses was doubting in God's ability to carry through with his promises. And now the people of Israel are starting to feel the exact same way. The people of Israel, they're, they don't know how all this is gonna take place. Uh, they've all been making bricks for 400 years. That's all they know, that's all they're familiar with. They don't see past their current circumstances that God can actually do anything with what they're doing. They can't see that past, the fact that God is actually at work and been at work all along, because all they do is make bricks. That's all they know. And so they doubt God. They doubt his ability. They're even beginning to doubt that Moses and Aaron are somehow even connected to them. Moses has been gone for 40 to 80 years. They don't even know this guy. And then this Aaron guy just shows up on scene, and they're like, who's this guy? We don't know. So the author of the book of Exodus at this point saw it right and saw it good to insert a genealogy. Exciting times, right? Genealogies are our favorite portions of scripture and also the only thing we wanna look at at perhaps the hottest week of the year, right? Genealogies aren't always exciting. But when we read scripture, we, wanna, we want to engage uh, scripture with, with stories that have a clear and succinct doctrine. We, we want to look into the word for clear and concise instructions that are going to lead us in the right way of living. We want to look at scripture and find inspiration from God's words. And when we see these lists of names that just lift so-and-so after so-and-so after so-and-so after so-and-so after so-and-so after so-and-so, you kind of lose track. Your eyes glaze over even as you try to pronounce these ancient names. You begin to even wonder, is there anything here? And you begin to doubt that there's anything there because it's just a list of names. So you just quickly move on. Well, this morning as we interact with this, I'm gonna say an exciting genealogy. Uh, we're gonna look at a list of 45 names and we're gonna do our best to answer the question, God, what are you up to? And God, what are you up to as you're calling Moses and Aaron to do this incredible thing that you've called them to do? So we're going to ask three different questions, and they're all there in your note sheets. The first question is, why does, scripture, why does the scripture narrative include genealogies even in the first place? Why are these important? Why are they there in the grand scheme of things? So before we even read our text from Exodus 6, we're going to try our best to answer that question so we're grounded as we move forward. So even before, sorry, I already said that. Long after is what I was meaning to say, uh, the story of Exodus continues on. The Israelites are, as we know them right now, they're in the land of Egypt. Eventually, they're gonna make the way, there's no spoilers here, it's all written in here. Uh, they're gonna make their way into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they're gonna wander for a long time and eventually they're gonna get into the promised land where they're gonna be grown and developed as a nation in the land of Israel. And from there, a lot of really cool things are gonna happen, one being Jesus Christ is born. He lives, he, he teaches, he dies, he's resurrected, he ascends into heaven, and before he ascends into heaven, he, he commissions all of his disciples to go into the world and to share all the good news with everyone and anyone growing uh, God's kingdom. One of those individuals, eventually, his name is Paul. Paul does those very same things. He goes into the Mediterranean area, he plants churches, he trains pastors, and he's developing Christian centers of ministry. 
and he trains pastors as he does this. And one of the guys that he trains, his name is Timothy. And he says to Timothy these words. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the person of God, that everyone in God may be competent and that they may be equipped for every good work. I wonder if you caught those first two words there. All scripture is breathed out by God. Everything within the canon of scripture, every story, every word, every poem, every miracle, every genealogy comprises the totality of scripture. Everything within this good book points to the character of God, points to his love and to his compassion for all of his people. And ultimately, everything in the scripture, in the Bible, points to his ultimate plan for salvation. This good book is literally all we need, including the genealogies. So we're going to see this morning a greater purpose to these portions of text as they do more than just confirm the biblical record. They do more than just list off family names to give an indication of their ancestral and historical context. One commentator I read this week put it this way. He, he writes, the more we learn about the individuals mentioned, the more we learn about what it means to belong to the people of God. The more we learn about what it means to belong to the people of God. And that belonging nature is, is, is key within our theology, within the Reformed practice. We want to understand that we belong to something greater, that there's something so much more that we are part of. Well, these genealogies help us understand those things. So genealogies have been preserved for us over these ages so that we can learn more about the character of God and about how we as a people belong to him and how also we participate with him in his story about how he's bringing about salvation for all. And even as we see people within this context, we can identify ourselves in these stories with the individuals who are playing a part in them. And that these individuals in these stories, in these genealogies, they're both sinners and saints. They struggle with life and they take joy in life. So the first reason why these genealogies are included is that we often don't see that our past influences our present, which prepares us for our futures. You see, these sinners and these saints in their text today that we're going to look at, like us, they too are navigating life. They're trying to sort out its challenges. They're trying to do their best to live into its joys. We're all trying to progress through life so that the next generation that is coming up below us will be better off, will be able to be drawn closer to their Heavenly Father. And so you all here, you all represent countless years of our ancestors working tirelessly so that we can be right where we're at. And we today are doing the same thing for our generations to come. We're working tirelessly so that they can be better off in this particular world, in this particular time, being able to grow closer to the Lord through it all as well. And so we see for us and for these ancient uh, civilizations here is that biblical genealogies help their audiences learn from their past to see where they are at now and to get a broader understanding of their trajectory as they go forward in life. And so another thing that our genealogies do is that they highlight that the Lord cares for the individual that who is a part of the story. You see, we've talked a lot in this series and other series about the nation of Israel. And we talk about the nation of Israel. We picture two million, four million plus people. 
We're, we're just picturing this mass group of people. But as God is looking at these particular people in these particular stories, he's not just seeing mass groups of people. He's seeing these individuals that he knows their name. He sees the person behind the story. He knows their, their names. He knows their functions. He knows what they're up to. He knows the hair on their heads. He knows their struggles. He knows their joys. And so the second reason why these genealogies are included in Scripture is that like the Israelites, God shows us that God knows us intimately because he knows the individuals who are part of the story. And so this is where I, I love what Jesus says to his listeners as he's, he's just gone through in John 10 talking about how he's the good shepherd. He's the best one available. And he says within that context, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know them by name. I know who they are. I know everything about them. He, he knows each name that we're gonna read from Exodus 6. He knows each name that has lived from Exodus 6 and beyond all the way until now. And he knows you intimately so. And I would just, just wanna pause here and just think about that thought for a second of God's all-knowing power, of how he knows everyone who has existed. He knows everyone who is currently existing. He knows everyone who is yet to exist. Those children that you long for, those people you desire to meet, he knows them already. The colleagues you work with and their families, he knows them. Every single one. How many people in this world right now? Someone shout it out. How many billion? 7.2? Do I hear 7.3, 7.3, 7.4, 7.4? Either way, it's a lot of people. Uh, how many people have lived beforehand? How many people are yet to come? Out of all of those billions and billions and billions of people, God knows you. He knows your thoughts right now. He knows the sins in your life. He knows your temptations. He knows your, what brings you joy. He knows what makes you smile. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've heard. He knows what you've seen. There's nothing about you that is a surprise to him. I find that just absolutely fascinating that from the people that are all written in here that we're gonna look at very, very soon to everyone now, everyone who has and everyone who will, God knows them intimately so. It's the same thing for the people that we're gonna read in just a moment. So now before going on to explain and look at the next three, the next two questions, let's read Exodus 6, starting at verse 14. We're gonna try our best to wrestle through some of these names. Now, I want you to visualize here. This is telling the story from Jacob. Jacob is the father of uh, Israel. He's the father of all of these nations, and he has three sons that it highlights here. And these three sons that are being highlighted, there's one that's of special mention, and that is Levi. And it's gonna be tracking Levi's generation, his story of his kids and their kids and their kids and a few others as it goes on. So I want you to try and visualize with me a bit of a family tree that highlights Jacob's 12 sons, but highlights three, emphasizes one, and eventually tracks it down to a gentleman named Aaron. So these are the heads of the father's houses. The sons of Reuben, that's the firstborn of Israel, of Jacob, Hanok, Pelu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. These are the sons of Simeon, Jamul, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul. 
the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. So that's the second son of Jacob. Third son of Jacob coming up. These are the names of the sons of Levi. According to their generations, we have Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, now we're following, the, 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 the lineage is starting to fill out. Uh, we have the sons of Gershon, uh, Libni, Shimhi, and their clans. The sons of Kohath, Gershon's brother, Amron, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel, the life the year of Kohath being 133 years. Then the sons of Merari, uh, again, the, the third brother there. Uh, the, his sons were Malhi and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Now another guy comes in here, Amran, uh, took for his wife uh, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amran being 137 years. The sons of Issar were Kohah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took for his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab and the sister of Nahashon. And she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithmathar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiaseph. And these are the clans of the Korathites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took for his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron, and this is the Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. So this genealogy doesn't exactly have the same structure, the same flow from name to name to name that most other genealogies have. This, this particular genealogy is structured in family groups, and we see a kind of a, a wide path at the start, and, a, and it kind of zeroes in to this one gentleman named Aaron and eventually to his grandson named Phineas all to point out to the Israelite nation that both Moses and Aaron are a part of the Hebrew family and that more pointedly, they are actually a part of not just the broad Hebrew family, but they are part of the Levite tribe. Now, the Levite tribe is not yet fully established yet, but they are soon to be designated as the priests, as the leaders within this nation to come so that as they go into the wilderness, they will have a worship structure. They'll have people who are in charge of how they're gonna gather and how they're gonna glorify God. And it was going to be the Levites who would do that. And Moses and Aaron are here highlighted as a, being a part of that particular tribe, which is incredibly important. Because when we met Moses, and we heard his story, Aaron just appeared to, to kind of show up and to help as God ordained that. And so the author of Exodus here, he's doing his best to highlight to the, to the Israelites and to us as well of, of Aaron's place within this nation and within the Levitical tribe. And he's telling us that Aaron is a worthy partner to work alongside Moses to do the things that the Lord has called them to do. And so we're reminded that both Aaron and Moses are God's chosen people for this particular role of leadership. And we begin to see more clearly that God doesn't haphazardly invite people to serve. He chooses people with deep intentionality. He knows what he's doing as he's bringing these people together. Even though to the Israelites, this Moses and this Aaron, they appear like they just kind of randomly walked into the show from nowhere. God knows. He's not mistaken. He is not surprised. This is the way he planned it. And so last week, we closed our, our service there looking at Exodus 6, and which closes with still Moses uh, telling God that he's got unskilled lips. 
And, but he's also telling God that, well, these people, these Israelites, they're not listening to me anymore or at all. And we begin to see Moses was doubting God and he was lacking trust in him. And now this nation of Israel was doubting God and lacking trust in him as well. And so this genealogy is inserted right at this time and place to draw the nation of Israel and all of their audiences to see that the stories represented by these 45 names will be together a work to proclaim that God is trustworthy, that God is just. Now some of these stories, they're, they're, they're gonna highlight positive things. Some of the names will emphasize negative things, but all together we see a picture of God's being trustworthy, of God being just. I find it fascinating in how this, this uh, genealogy is structured and the names that are included and some of the names and their meanings are sometimes a little simple and sometimes a little funny. Like the guy named Nefeg, he is, uh, his name means clumsy. You can imagine what that life looked like for him. His name means clumsy. Korah, his name means baldy. Mr. Baldy, we call him. I'm sure he was fairly bald when he was born. Palu means extraordinary. And I can imagine that uh, even Moses, and in, in, in now how we've been tracking with, with the story, Moses is like, God, why didn't you call the extraordinary guy? He's better, he's clearly liked, everyone loves him. He's extraordinary, God, use him. And God's like, no, I called you because you were brought up out of the water. You were saved so to save many. I don't need an extraordinary guy, I need you. Other names tell the story of God's activity in their lives. And these names would have sparked the hearers to, to grow in an awareness of God's presence. This guy named Shaul, or Shaul, means prayers are answered. Jacobed means God's glory. Elzaphan means God has created. Eliezer means God has aided. My wife and I, we, we love the practice of naming our children, Pam and I. And uh, I gotta say, naming children has to be one of the most unique things parents can do. Would you agree? It's a pretty ridiculous process when you think about that. You're choosing the name of this particular child that's gonna grow up with this name forever. There's a lot to think about. You gotta think about all the connotations, all the ways that names could be re re reworked by the future school children. You gotta even think about how their uh, initials become an acronym for something. You just gotta be aware. Um, Pam and I also, Pam's been a teacher for uh, quite some time. I've been a pastor for quite some time. So we have a lot of names that we've worked with. A lot of people uh, we have association with uh, for good and for the bad, of course. And so when it came to naming our, our children, uh, man alive, that was, that was a difficult affair because she would come up with a name and be like, no, I had a student that was Nyeh. And I'd come up with a name, she was like, no, we can't do that one. And then we'd be like, well, let's name them after parents. And parents were like, no, don't do that. So, what do we do? So we fell in love with a few other names. Uh, and I want to tell you about my third daughter. She's actually not here. She's on the other side at uh, Sunday school. Her name is Eden Hanalei. Eden Hanalei is my youngest daughter. She's eight. Eden is from the Garden of Eden. Means paradise. Means a place that is beautiful. It means a place that is pleasant. A, a delightful space. She is exactly all of those things, just so you know. Uh, but her middle name is Hanalei. Hanalei is uh, kind of a conjunction of two different names, Hannah and Lay. Hannah meaning uh, gracious, full of grace, full of mercy, things that we're all learning to be, right? And a lei is a Hawaiian wreath, uh, a flower uh, necklace that you would wear. And uh, Hanalei is actually a beach in Hawaii that we've loved and been to a few times, and it's absolutely stunning of a place. So her name is Eden Hanalei. When we see her name together, 
we see her as delightfully wrapped in the grace of God. That's what her name means to us, that she is delightfully wrapped in the grace of God. It's a cool picture. And for us as a family, for us five, we, we remember that from time to time. We see that, hey, as a family of five, we are too, not just Eden Hanley, but we are also wrapped in the grace of God. But more than that, does that story tells us so much more in that all of us together, it tells us the story that we are delightfully wrapped in the grace of God. That's how God designed us. So for us in this modern context, to figure all that out about a particular name is tough. It takes some work. But for the Hebrews who heard and saw these genealogies come out in front of them, they would have been, aha, God has aided. That's right. God does answer prayers because they know Hebrew. They know the structure of the names. They know why the names are mentioned. And it points them to the fact that God is actually with them. These names tell their stories, just like Eden for our family will tell the story that we are delightfully wrapped in the grace of God. These names for the Hebrews will remind them that God is with them, that God hears them, and that God knows their stories. And the same should be true for us today. So thirdly, for the third question here is, what can we then learn from this particular genealogy? This is where we got to do a little bit more work. And so within this genealogy, there are both saints and sinners, and people who are included to highlight for the Israelites and for the future audiences that uh, there is uh, hope in the Lord. There is good things to come. There's a lot of things that are good going for us. But also, there's some things in our patterns of life that we're for beginning to forget. There are also other names to emphasize some warnings for some destructive habits. Each name, again, points to our God and Father who is trustworthy and who is just. So we're going to look briefly at four groups, of, of kind of groups of people, some, some groups and some singles. Uh, the first two are going to be affirmational messages. So the first three guys we have are Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Kohath being Aaron's grandfather, Aaron being brother of Moses. And, uh, so these are the three sons of Levi, grandsons of Jacob. And later on, so again, we're going to be looking at these names and who they are to come because Exodus isn't is a kind of a preamble to all of what's to come. So a lot of what we're gonna look at is when they're all in the wilderness. So these three sons of Jacob, later on as the Israelites made their way into the wilderness, uh, as a nation, they all set up camp. And if you can picture with me, this uh, 12 tribes of Israel all living in a giant circle, and then right smack in the middle is the tabernacle, the, their temporary place of worship, the thing that they were organized to structure their lives fully around. And in this particular tabernacle, the precursor to the temple, there were uh, assigned roles, and these three gentlemen all were given a particular task. Gershon was in charge of the fabric and the curtains that made up its walls. Kohath was in charge of the interior and all its contents and all the things inside, the bowls, the basins, the candlesticks, the Ark of the Covenant, their, their articles for worship. Merari was in charge of the structure of the tent, its post and its beams to make sure that it was sound to gather in. So these brothers and their tribes and all the people to come, as they would eventually, they would start doing the same things with the temple much later on. The, uh, they, they, they were there to lead God's people to a place of worship of the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so the mention of these three names in this particular genealogy uh, together taught the Israelites and us, because we are very prone to forget, to be faithful in our service, to be constant in our worship so that we could continue together to grow closer to the Lord and to others. These, these stories sparked in the Israelites uh, a hope that, hey, if we keep on going, if we keep on participating, if we keep on being a part, we will continue to grow. 
Second guy, his name is Phineas. The last name mentioned in this genealogy, Aaron's grandson. So there again in the wilderness, they've been there for a little bit longer and the Israelites were starting to mingle with the surrounding nations around them. This neighboring nation of Moab became a bit of a, a difficult uh, neighbor for them. But they started marrying these Moabite ladies. They started worshiping their Moabite gods. Two things that God was very strict about and said, don't do those things. Don't mingle and don't, you know, worship their gods and do the other things. Stay mine, God says. So Moses commanded, this is where the story gets a little difficult. Uh, Moses commanded the chiefs and the judges of Israel to go and kill each of the men who had gone to give themselves to the Moabite ladies to, who started worshiping the Moabite gods. And while all of this was happening, while that judgment was coming down, there is another man who had the audacity to in front of Moses, in front of the congregation of the Israelites, and in front of his family, he brought yet another Moabite woman home. And so Phineas is watching all of this play out. This is Numbers 25, verse 7. When Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this action take place, this other guy come bring home another Moabite lady, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through their bellies. He saw something that needed to be done. He did what he had to do. Kind of a sad turn of events, but these are the things that happened. But what also was going on in this particular story was that God was getting more and more unsatisfied with the Israelites and the patterns of their lives. And he was like, there's gonna be a plague that's gonna come. There's gonna be a plague to slow you down. We need to get you back in control. We need to figure you out again to draw you back to me, God says. But then the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy. And the NIV even says he was zealous for my honor. He was seeking to do the Lord's will. God continues, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him, Phineas, my covenant of peace. This mention of Phineas taught the Israelites and teaches us, because we're pretty quick to forget, that those who stand against evil for God's honor would be granted a life of peace. Message number four. And again, these are, these are the stories for these people who are entering into this land, reminding them of who they need to be and how they need to work under the Lord, that they can actually do good things. Then it turns into these messages of warnings. We look at this other guy. His name is Korah. Now, so while in the wilderness, Moses and his, uh, uh, and his other fellow leaders, they, they were they're starting to lose respect. They're starting to lose ground with the, with the people because the people, while in the wilderness, kept on looking back to their life in Egypt. They even gathered at one point to say, oh, that we had had meat to eat. Remember the fish that we ate in Egypt. That cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is being dried up and there is nothing but this manna to look at. They're remembering and hoping to go back to those time frames where they were back in Egypt, where they had all the food that they could ever ask for, but now they're in the wilderness and all they get is this white feathery stuff that's supposedly manna, that's supposedly nourishing. And they got that every single day. Well, it got worse for them. 
and this nation was starting to lose sight of how God was unfolding the plan. It was taking some time, this people needed some work, and so amongst them came this group of leaders, this group of people that were led by Korah, some 250 leaders. They, they rose up against Moses, they rose up against Aaron, and so they approached them and said, you've gone too far. For all in the congregation, all in the land of Israel, everyone is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is amongst them. And they spoke directly to Moses, saying, why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? They started speaking against this divine appointment of Moses to say that we're on this track to do these things. And they're like, no, Moses, you're wrong. You've gone all about it all wrong. We've gone, we need to be doing other things. We need to go back to those land of meat. I could want to paint more of the picture of number 16 here for you, but we don't have the time. There's a whole conversation that happens between God and Moses about how God is going to respond to this direct attack against his leadership. Happens in verse 31. And as soon as they had finished speaking all these words between God and Moses about this, uh, this coming thing, the ground underneath them, the, that is the, the Korah and his, all his friends, is split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their whole houses on all the people who belonged to Korah and all of their goods. So all that they had belonged to them went down alive into this land of Sheol. And that's like kind of like the earth below the earth, uh, the, the land of the dead, the, the, the Hades. And everyone went down there and the earth closed over them and they perished in the midst of the assembly. It's, it's a sad reality seeing what had happened there. Korah and his cronies and his 250 buddies said, we can do it better, God. We understand a larger picture. We know how to handle this thing that you're trying to fix and it's not working. I feel like the New Testament author James is familiar with this story as this plays out. James is supposedly a brother of Jesus and has some incredible insight to share with the Hebrew nation. And he asks uh, in James 3, verse 13, who is wise and understanding amongst you? By his good conduct, let him show the works and meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false in the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You can't go against God is what James is saying for your own reasons, for your own ambitions. You just can't. It's not wise. It doesn't end well. Basically, he says here, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But then wisdom from above is first pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason. I don't think Korah and his cronies were open to reason. Full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Korah was being wise in his own eyes. He felt that he had all the right answers to solve all the present problems. He was filled with that selfish ambition, that prideful arrogance, and he gathered with himself 250 like-minded people. And together, they lacked the foresight to see that God was working through their circumstances to bring about a salvation for the entire nation and not just himself and his 250 friends. He failed to see that God had placed Moses and Aaron right where he needed them. And so the mention of Korah taught the disciples and us that we are to be content in the place that the Lord has placed us. I think we often forget that. I know I do on a very regular basis. Fourthly and finally, 
Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's direct sons. Now, now Moses and Aaron, as we were talking about, they've been given the Levitical uh, role within their nation. Uh, as leaders, they were given the instructions for worship and how the new tabernacle was to operate and how everything was to happen within that tabernacle in the wilderness. Then these two sons of Aaron, uh, they thought that they could do things on their own in their own ways, that they thought they could bring their own incense to the Lord. That it was, but that was only the duty of the high priest. But these two gentlemen, uh, they're not high priests. They're, they're sons of priests. They belong to the family, but they're not actually high priests. So it says in Leviticus 10, uh, nine, uh, yeah, 10 verse one, these two guys come up. So Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took their own censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from them and the Lord consumed them and they died there before the Lord. This is a troubling thing again. But again, it points to the fact that they failed to see that what they were doing was not their duty. It wasn't even the right time. It wasn't even with the right instruments. That's what Leviticus is all about and how all of these things were to be done in a certain way, in a certain fashion, in a certain order to provide them structure. But they went above and around that saying, we could do it better, God. We want to do it all on our own. We have our own selfish ambition. We want to do things on our own. And so they approached God with those own objectives, their own personal desires, and they were held accountable in a very serious way for their actions. So the mention of a, a, a Nadab and Abihu here taught the Israelites and us that elevating ourselves above God's commands has dire consequences. God is God and we are not. And we're not above. We are way, way down there. So we've seen through the mention of these names that there are many saints, there are many sinners, many who sought to glorify God and many who sought to glorify themselves. And we walk away from the hearing of these characters with a deeper understanding that our lives are really less about what we're capable of and the circumstances that we find ourselves in and more completely about what God is capable of and the plan that he is working out. So there's one more message within, tucked away within this genealogy that I want to spend just a brief moment on highlighting. This is a final message of hope, which speaks again to God's sovereign plan. Two other names were mentioned that are just sneakily tucked away in the middle there. They are Aminadab and Nahashon. That's Aaron's father-in-law and Aaron's brother-in-law from what I can tell. And the, while these two men appear here, they appear again with deep purpose and intentionality and perhaps one of the best genealogies that the Bible has to offer. If you have your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one starts off at verse one by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this is your more typical genealogy and how it's spread out. It says in verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nahashon, and Nahashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king, the great, great, great grandfather of the one and only Jesus Christ. These two individuals here in the story highlight the fact that God was working long in advance, organizing himself, organizing all of the story to point into the direction of Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves, uh, sorry, I jumped ahead here, and we see that reality long ago that, that God was not only working out the plan of salvation for the nation of Israel, 
but he's also working out the plan of salvation for us all, for every one of us on a much grander scale. God was working out this complete plan to bring about the time frames to get to his son. You see, God enacts his sovereign plan from start until finish. And somewhere in the middle of all that, we are still existing. And we find ourselves sometimes wondering, God, what are you up to? And we need to help her see, see ourselves in this greater picture. There's more happening around us than just our present circumstances. Those present circumstances for the Israelites being making bricks every day. There's more happening amongst them and how they were making bricks and the, the world that the Lord was organizing around them. For us, it could be that struggle in school, that new diagnosis, that broken down vehicle, that lost relationships, you name it. We, we have to see that the Lord is doing so much more in the world around us and is somehow using some of those circumstances to draw us back to himself, to see yourselves playing a role in a much greater story. So as we see these stories play out through these genealogies, we are further assured that God does, in fact, have a large picture in mind, weaving together his amazing tapestry of his amazing story that will ultimately lead us all to his throne room, into his full and into his glorious presence. So may we, as we go from here today, may we be patient in our struggles. May we be patient in our afflictions. May we, by the Spirit, be given the ability to fully place our entire trust in God's provision for our lives. Well, here at Gateway, it is our sincere hope that you would be built up in your faith and in your walk before Christ through this message and every day as you study God's Word. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.